This is Rodney Wittenberg. And this is David Heitler Clevens. And welcome to a very special edition of Music for, for the, the New Revolution. Revolution. You will not be a- David and I are here with George and Kathleen Higgins. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And we're going to have a discussion about guns, the anti-gun violence movement, and their personal journey. So can we start with a little bit about who the two of you are and how how the issue of guns came into your life? Well, we had a family tragedy. So the issue of guns didn't really cross our attention until a family member, two family members, were murdered in their home by a kid who should not have been able to get his hands on a gun, broke his family's heart. So it was a tragedy all around. And once your heart breaks, sometimes it breaks open where you do not want anyone else to feel a grief like that. And that's how it hit me. And I first encountered uh, guns back when I was at um, uh, university. I was in uh, ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Got my first gun there because I was on the uh, rifle squad. Basically learned how to respect the instrument and you know put it to one side. I'm not a hunter. I'm not a sports shooter, but it was just part of what I did in going to uh, university. So being a gun owner was uh, in my background and really got involved in wondering what was going on. Uh, Columbine, I think, was uh, a bit of an awakening you know, what, what's happening, but we didn't get involved then. Then Aurora occurred. And I think that was the first awakening that there's something going on that uh, we need to investigate. And then shortly after that, Sandy Hook happened. And at that point, I just, I, I got I to figure out what's happening. Wow. So how do the timelines connect between the family tragedy and your beginning of, I guess, social activism or activism in this area? One of the things that, uh, that I say is that our personal grief had brought us to our knees, and Sandy Hook, compassion, brought us to our feet, and we determined then to never be silent. We had grieved alone for about, it's been 15 years now as I speak, since that double death in our family. It crops up sometimes as if it was a moment ago. And sometimes now we have some peace in regard to that. But when Sandy Hook happened, it it just tore us open all over again. And we actually saw um, a broadcast from the NRA that said, don't worry, they'll forget in two weeks like they always do. And that's when I realized that my silent personal grief was taken as if I didn't care. And of course, it's, it's the opposite. So that from that time forward, we decided, do what we could, show up where we needed to show up, say what needed to be said, so that we can protect as much as we can this from happening to anyone else. A friend of ours, Mark Barden, lost his six-year-old son, Daniel, at Sandy Hook. And that lives almost as personally for me as my own loss. Well, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, were disheartened by the lack of change after Sandy Hook. I heard a lot of people saying, if this doesn't change things, what will? But 
I sort of feel like it's been building ever since, and there is a sea change. And now with the Parkland kids who are so inspiring, I think that um, sometimes there's kind of a delayed reaction. You know, I think of it a little bit like the whole Me Too movement coming a few months after people were disheartened that somebody like Trump could get elected even after all of the incredibly offensive things he said during the campaign. But it felt like that led to a real change, you know, with the Me Too movement. So I, I hope that that's happening now with the idea of reasonable yeah. gun restrictions. I agreed. You know. When I focused on this, I said, okay, what can we do at the state level? Because obviously nothing's going to happen at the national level. So where does our state stand on this? We come from Delaware. And in Delaware, they've been trying to get background checks passed for at least the last 20 years, the universal background checks where private sales also require a background check. We had introduced another bill at that time, and there was testimony for it. And the day after uh, the background check bill got denied nationally, we were able to get it passed in Delaware because we reasoned this was about protection of Delawareans and that if it wasn't going to happen on a national level, it needed to happen at our level and that private gun sales were actually putting guns into the hands of people who had the ability of then turning it over into the black market, and that was killing kids in Wilmington. And over the course of a year, as many kids would get killed in Wilmington as got killed in Sandy Hook. So it was just a matter of timing, but the families that were being involved, it was the same number of families, basically, and the tragedy was right here in home, and we uh, needed to do something about that. So after... that time in between the family tragedy and Sandy Hook, you said one brought you to your knees and the other brought you to your feet. In that bringing to your feet, was there a process that happened that ha- made that change from, I would imagine, anger and grief and sadness and depression to empowerment? How did that transition happen? You're right in that at the beginning of the personal grief, it is overwhelming. It was just devastating. To lose a family member through age or through disease is certainly a lot of grief. But to have them taken by brutality like this, to come into the home and and shoot them dead, somehow that is a grief that is even more vicious. And the anger that comes with that. There is a period of time where you need to come to forgiveness so that you can take the burden off your own self What happens is I had to drop the burden of my own anger to be able to let compassion bloom and then to stand up and say, people of goodwill, we need to bind together so that grief like this is diminished because fewer people are being killed. Get together, protect each other, protect the children. That takes a heart that's open instead of one that's enraged. I mean, one thing I think is interesting is, you know, some people would take a situation like yours and focus all their anger on the individual person who committed the crime. And you've turned it into something positive where your anger is directed at the source of the problem that's a bigger social issue related to the availability of guns. And there may be other things too, but, you know, a much more positive redirecting of your feelings. It did take about five years to come to the point of forgiveness. And I knew I had forgiven when I imagined that I got a call from the prison that said the perpetrator had a toothache. 
And in my imagination, I said, well, then fix it. Because nothing that can happen to him will bring my people back. And what the, the energy that I have now to be able to go to the vigils and, and do the things that we do to try to help with this, that energy is I'm being pulled, not pushed, pulled by the idea that compassion, people of goodwill binding together, there is a shining power. So once you made the decision, both of you collectively made the decision or as a couple that you were going to do something, how did you figure out what to do? It's a long journey from I'm going to do something to actually going to be invited to go to D.C. on a regular basis to be on Obama's commission for investigating what can be done about gun violence. That's a pretty amazing journey. So what happened and how did it happen that both of you did that? For me, right after Sandy Hook, Move On had broadcast opportunities for people to get together just at other people's homes. So you put in your zip code and if there wasn't anything close by, you could organize something. And if there was something close by, it told you who it was. And there was a couple up in um, Wayne, Pennsylvania, who had opened their house and said, you know, we'll have some, we can, we can have a meeting and get together. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just was compelled to go there. There were probably 15 other people and during the course of this, we, we talked about things, and then we got up and kind of declared, okay, if we're going to take any kind of action, what is our skill and area of focus? And as an engineer, I found myself in a matter of curiosity is, how did we get to where we are nationally that we can't even get a background check passed you know, in, in face of this kind of a tragedy? And I wasn't so interested in starting anything as I was in answering that question. So I went home and I did a lot of research and basically discovered, as I, as I mentioned, that we hadn't been paying attention for the last 30 years. Behind the scenes, gun regulations had been talked about, but I hadn't been paying any attention to them. And it had, it had basically all fallen by default that the gun lobby was pretty much dictating what got passed and what didn't get passed. And I started asking myself, okay, well, so what's in it for them? And then pretty much discovered, well, it's money. Uh, that there was a decision made back in the 70s that the NRA, rather than stay on the path of building a conference center out in the West to do sportsman-like things and so forth, the, their board of directors had a real upheaval and was taken over by folks that said, you know, we can put ourselves between Congress and the CEOs of gun manufacturers because we saw what happened in the tobacco industry. And, you know, they really got crucified when they were in there directly. They're really, the CEOs aren't good for that. So we could be the front for that. And they got some really big donations and so forth and have continued to get donations. So on the one hand, there's the legislative action side that's got Wayne LaPierre and everybody really you know, coming out with these off-the-wall things. But behind the scenes, they've got folks that are in there doing lobbying, and, and they've really created this big distraction for us. So with all of that, I started looking a little bit differently at some of the legislation that we were trying to get passed and seeing what else we could bring to bear. And the key thing was that we were trying to pass some legislation that uh, if you have a gun 
and it's lost or stolen, that you have to report it to law enforcement. Now, this made sense to me. If I've got a camera that's stolen, I'm going to report to law enforcement because I'd like to get it back. And I also keep some record serial numbers and, and some description about that that I can give to law enforcement. Or your insurance company. Or your insurance company in order to get compensated. And I knew that the NRA was offering insurance for gun owners to insure their property. But they always said, we'll never ask you any information about your guns. We won't keep any records like that. So I got to thinking, how could you collect a claim if they don't have any record of what it is that you're claiming? I mean, that would sound pretty odd. Uh, so I did some online searching. And I actually came up with the claim reports you know, online. It wasn't that easy to find them, but I, but I found them and I printed them out and it asked for the make and the model number and the barrel length and the serial number and, and all this great information. At the bottom it says, and unless you can supply all this information, your claim isn't going to be, you know, you're not going to get a positive response. So I took all of that information, and when we were doing lost or stolen uh, testimony, I testified at that time, and I said, we're not asking for anything more than the NRA already asked for in their insurance claim. And one of the first things that they ask also is, what's the re report number, the police report number that you, you know, that you gave when you reported this thing? Now, the people that were in opposition were all up in arms about that, and so and I just held up the the paper says this is it I was, I'm, you know this, this is what the claim form is and at that point the uh, chair of the committee asked one of the legislative aides to get that information so they took that from me at the time and a couple of days later i got a call from the uh, attorney general's office uh, asking if i would be more seriously involved in some of this because of the the research that i had produced uh, we did get the lost and stolen gun bill passed, by the way, and you do have to report it if, it if it's missing now. That only makes sense. That was how I ended up getting involved with sort of the inner side of this, of the people who are really doing things. The other aspect of that is I had to keep asking myself, how can we make an effect? Because there's more of us who are really interested in gun violence prevention than there is in the members of the gun lobby. However, the gun lobby is basically organized around the NRA. It's very centralized, or Gun Owners of America, which is also centralized, but the NRA is the one that stands out. So you've got this centralized organization. So how can we as a mass of people who are involved with our state organizations or some of the ones that were emerging like Moms Demand Action or some of them that were around for a long time like Brady, how can we be effective together? So it's basically a business proposition of how can a virtual organization compete with a centralized organization. And what I felt there was that we, we needed to have some means to coalesce, to get everybody to talk with one another. So constantly in everything that I'm doing, I'm either doing research into the issues or I'm looking at means of connection. So every time there would be a newspaper report of somebody who got shot in Wilmington, I would read it and I would look for names of individuals and organizations who are associated. So for instance, Wilmington Peacekeepers was always out there. They've been around for, I don't know, 30 years or so. And they go out to help the families and so forth and to also to, to try to intervene such as not retaliations. 
So I would get involved with the Wilmington Peacekeepers. I got involved with the Unitarian Church in uh, Wilmington. I got involved with other local organizations. Because I was involved that way, it gave me some insight, and I started getting involved with the national organizations, not to join with them, but to understand what they were doing and to see how what, everything could coalesce. And that's how I ended up with, with State United. I'm now on the board of directors for State United to Prevent Gun Violence, and that's an affiliation of 32 different state organizations, such as our Delaware Coalition, such as Ceasefire Pennsylvania and, and others. And we compare notes. So uh, if we're doing something that's exciting, we can replicate it elsewhere. And if we're doing something that's not working, we can learn from it and not repeat it. So um, that's kind of how I got from where we were to where I am. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Thank you, Pete. And, and, and Kathleen? Um, I would say uh, for those who are not sure exactly where their strengths or talents would be called for, mainly show up. If you hear about a vigil, get yourself there. If you hear about forum, people gathering and, and looking at this, show up. Just be there. Listen, talk to people. And sure enough, somebody is going to reach out and say, would you be interested in whatever it is? And then choose the things that really are something that is easy for you to do, something that's natural to you. It's natural for me to talk. I was uh, approached through States United. Uh, States United was looking for people who have had a personal reason to be interested in ceasing the violence. And so I was asked to appear in a video that was a public service announcement several years ago. Our public service announcement was actually submitted to CAN and one titanium lion, wow. which is the highest public service wow. announcement. Yes, Congratulations. exactly. Yeah. yeah, thanks. And has been used. The name of it is Unload Your 401k. <laughs> <laughs> and they use that video to go around to large pension funds, large colleges, anyone who is investing to make sure they're not investing in gun manufacturer or ammunition manufacturer. The idea being, of course, that we don't want to sponsor the very thing that is causing the tragedy. And that's been very effective. So after that, local people asked me to come forward. One of my friends who is Quaker asked me to come to the meeting house to hear about something called the Alternatives to Violence Project, which was formed by the Quakers in 1975 and has gone worldwide. And now, in fact, I do facilitate the Alternatives to Violence Project in the local prison in Wilmington and lead two workshops per month and have the other facilitators, of course, are incarcerated and we all work together to change how people who are incarcerated react, give them more options. They arrived with a decision pattern that included violence. We want them when they be able to go home as returning citizens for them to have more options. And that workshop has been very powerful in doing that. And for someone like me who almost never shuts up, it's a very, it's a very, <laughs> something I can contribute that's natural to me. So look for what's natural to you, whether it's research the way my husband does or whether it's participation with people one-on-one, -on -one, eyeball to eyeball, where I typically do that. Find what matches for you as a person of goodwill. 
we we uh, interviewed John Flynn a little while ago, who also does the same program with you. Um, my question for you, Kathleen, is I guess it's just how do you do that when you are sitting across from someone that you know also may have committed a violent crime using a gun? How are you able to find compassion for that person and give to them and work with them? What 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 is that about for you? For me. Any of us who are trapped in violence as the perpetrator or the victim, we're all victims. That being trapped in violence and then ending up incarcerated when you're a young man and you're away from your family, away from being able to embrace anyone from four to eight to 12 years is something I don't actually want any young man to have to survive. How much better if, in fact, they and I can talk about, how is it like when you go home as a returning citizen? What about your younger brother? What about your uncle? What about your child? Depending on the age of the gentleman that I'm speaking with, wouldn't it be better if we could elevate our neighborhoods to where the friendship, the joy, the companionship that people really do crave was not impacted by violence? And they believe that too. The choices they made were the result of a lot of very unfortunate things. But the choices can be different. It's not inevitable that we shoot each other and bleed in the ditches. Do you feel like um, part of what's at issue here in terms of people who can do what you do and people who don't seem to be is a belief that there is the possibility of change in people like that? You know, you you seem to have that faith that even somebody who has committed a horrible crime has the potential to, you know, rebuild their life and to be a constructive you know citizen. And whereas there are some people who I think just want to, you know, believe that that's impossible or they can't come to, to the, I don't know, I, I'm wondering if that is part of the, the big division or something in terms of the world view about, because, you know, prisons used to be about rehabilitation and now they're just about punishment, it seems. And, uh, you know, Wally Lamb, who's this uh, novelist, has written a bunch, both fiction and nonfiction, to get into that. And, and it feels like you really believe that people can be rehabilitated. Is that? Yes. Yes, I do. And not everyone. Mm-hmm. But certainly there is a number of people incarcerated now who have realized that they don't like where their decision landed them, and they would like to have decisions in the future that are different. Because remember, it's painful. Punishment's painful, and none of us enjoy pain. Or I've heard rumor that... (laughs) (laughs) We won't get into that. We won't get into that. You figure, how many people actually want to feel badly? And there aren't a lot of them who actually want to feel badly. So that if you take that view that with choice, people are going to choose to have less pain. With choice, people are going to choose more joy. With choice. For those people who believe there are no choices, of course, that's a frame of mind. That's a decision, in fact, that you've made. But once you've seen people make those choices, once you understand and you yourself have made choices, when I went through that process of forgiveness, I had to change how I viewed my future. So I was in great pain from anger, from grief. And the only way out of that was forgiveness. A lot of people think forgiveness is acceptance. It is not. Forgiveness is finding a way to no longer be complicit 
in the pain that was caused to you by that tragedy. Once you've done that, you realize anyone could step away from their pain with some guidance, with some insight, with some effort. It isn't a snap of the fingers, but it is possible. So I'm struck because I'm, as I'm listening to both of you, I am saying, what, what kind of an unlikely pair of uh, social activists, not what you would normally think, a scientist and well, you're, you're a compliance officer for a major bank. Yeah. So, so that's a research scientist and a compliance. It's not what you think of when you think of radical lefty activists, but I commend both of you for that. It's just amazing and, 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 and awesome. I'm curious now, George, you mentioned the success of... Uh, getting that bill passed. And that was, I mean, that is, that story you told was absolutely brilliant. I love how you went, okay, I'm not going to just stand up and yell and scream. I'm going to go look and figure out, oh, look, they are doing exactly what they said they don't want us to do here. Mm -hmm. And it it probably was the thing that turned the decision because they're already doing it. And what other successes have both of you seen in the prisons, in schools, in some of the other organizations that you work with in your advocacy? What are some of the, the good stories that you could tell? Well, the, the one I love is that um, fairly recently, this year and, and the last session, we were able to get three bills passed unanimously by both the House and the Senate and signed by working with the opposition and coming up to agreements. And it was interesting that the, th- the three bills were, the first one was ballistics evidence collection. Now, nobody thinks about that, and you don't see that in the national press or anything else. But the fact that I learned was that if a police officer comes to the scene of a shooting and there is no victim, it's the responding officer's option as to whether he actually collects the evidence off the street, the, the, the spent cartridges. And with uh, the use of pistols today, it always throws cartridges around. Now, there's an issue with that because if you take the cartridge, it actually has the signature of the gun that was fired from it. If you look at it microscopically, you can it's like fingerprints. And there's a national database where you can put the ballistic evidence into a scanner and it will come up with other ballistic evidence that has already been scanned so you can connect one shooting with another shooting. So that evidence may be able to show you a trend of where that particular gun had been used in different locations and maybe in one of those locations there actually was somebody shot or even killed. The other problem with uh, not collecting the ballistic evidence is say somebody in a in a small town is uh, picked up on a driving infraction and he's got a gun in the car and they confiscate the gun and they put it in an evidence locker. Well, if that gun is never test fired and you don't take the cartridge from that and run it in there, you don't know whether that gun was actually a murder weapon. So uh, it breaks the, the chain of evidence by not collecting it. So the bill that was passed unanimously mandates that every law enforcement agency in the state of Delaware, when they go to a scene of a shooting, has to collect the evidence that's there and turn it over to the ATF for the, for the scanning and the ATF will put it into their database. This accomplished a number of things. The first that was really compelling to me was when I mentioned it to the folks down in Wilmington who have been involved with shootings and so forth. There's a um, this whole thing about snitches get stitches so you don't talk about what you saw you don't help the police. Well, one of the reasons that they weren't helping the police was because 
the police weren't closing the cases, so the shooters were still out on the street. So it was a very high-risk type of a situation. Well, when they began to hear me talking about this mandate for ballistic evidence collection, they said, oh, well, now if the police have to do their job and perpetrators actually get picked up and cases get closed, we'll come forward. And that uh, has been happening. And that More has cases been, and that have been closed, been happening. and are closing because now people are coming forward. Yeah, closing rate so is, is going up very high. And it's uh, the, the other side effect, which is really great. It's got all the police agencies to now cooperate with each other. Because if you've got a small police force and you've only got three people, it's very difficult to say, okay, well, one of them has to go over to drop this thing off in you know some distant city. And so they have a system set up now where the small agencies can turn it over to the state police, the state police will handle it after that. So it's actually got them talking to, to each other about what's going on in their own local communities, and this has a huge residual effect. So I got passed unanimously because essentially, if it was about a gun, it was about a gun that was already a crime gun. And if it's about ballistics evidence, a crime's already been committed and firing a gun where you shouldn't be firing a gun. So that was passed unanimously, and it's now, now law, and it's now being very effective in closing cases. The more recent one was we had a uh, lethal violence protection order bill, and that's a bill that I think is, is called in Pennsylvania the extreme violence protection order that you're trying to get passed here in Pennsylvania. But in Delaware, we got that passed, and again, that was unanimously. And that was a matter of saying that the people who notice first the Folks who are beginning to go, kind of go off the rails and get they're, they're having an anger management problem or are having episodes and they've got an access to a gun and they could potentially become a threat to themselves or to others. It's family members who are living with them that are the, the primary people who are going to first notice that. And this has showed up, for instance, in, uh, in the Isla Vista shooting in, yeah. in California. The fellow that did the shooting was known by his family to have posted all of this information on Facebook saying how mad he was, and they knew he had a gun and that he was headed to California, and they notified the California State Police, and California State Police actually interviewed him but didn't have enough evidence to actually go into the apartment where they would have found a manifesto, they would have found all his guns and everything else. So California passed their lethal violence protection order to enable a family member to notify authorities, and then the authorities could go in and check out the situation, get a court order to have the gun removed. So we said, well, we need to do the same thing in Delaware and managed to get that through unanimously. And then the other was what we call the, the uh, Bo Biden bill. It's basically a lethal violence protection order, but it enables a mental health professional to take action. And an illustration of that would be, I'm on the Delaware Suicide Prevention Coalition, and one of the members on that coalition works for the uh, Veterans Administration and is a mental health professional there. And when I was speaking to them about the lethal violence protection order, he said, I need something that'll help me. He says, I'm dealing right now with veterans who are really, really on the edge. And I know they have guns and there's nothing I can do about that. So now the uh, Biden bill allows him to go to a judge and petition the judge to have the guns temporarily removed from this individual so that they've got time to actually get the service that they need. And the, and the connection we see is that there are actually twice as many suicides in Delaware, and it's pretty much the way it is in the, in the country, as there are homicides, and nobody speaks about that. And the folks who commit the 
mass atrocities generally have already written off their life. They don't expect to survive. And they decide, well, rather than just take myself out, I'll take out all these other people with me. Sometimes and very often it's other family members just because it's a domestic situation. A lot of them are domestic like that and others are just, I want to go down as history as one of taking out more people than anybody else. And the um, shooting in Las Vegas, I think, is an indication of something along that line. Christine Lavin is a songwriter that we've interviewed on this podcast previously, and she has a song to address that kind of idea that's called don't take anyone else with you when you go. Yes. And basically saying, you know, I'm I'm so sorry that you feel like you have to end your life, but just do that. If you're going to do it, don't <laughs> don't yes. bring anybody else. <laughs> there, there's not one answer to this, but many, many people who care enough that we are starting to turn this back into a society in which we're less likely to harm each other rather than more. Right, right. Well, that actually makes me think of, you know, that our focus here on music for the new revolution is about the connections between music and the various issues that we're talking about. And I know you're coming from the activist side, but I'm curious whether you have anything to say about that connection, whether you've noticed anything that either music has been effective in doing related to these issues, or even if that isn't the case, if there's something you wish there was a song about, you know, because you think that, you know, this is a particular issue that you haven't heard expressed, then maybe that would be a helpful thing. I've always wished for an anthem, that we could have an anthem, such as there is the anthem for civil rights, we shall overcome. That there should be an anthem for caring for one another, such that we're all making sure there are no terrible tragedies of people wounded and killed by gun violence. The first thing that struck me too was we shall overcome. The first thing that went in my head that we don't we don't have something like that. I would like to see it focused on what it's like to be together, solidarity, helping one another, all those things that seem so counter what's going on in America today. Oftentimes when I'm in this, doing things in the, in the movement, it's because I can place myself into a row home in downtown Wilmington mentally and say, it was just happenstance. I was born into the family I was born into who happened to live where they were living, which enabled me to go to the schools that I went to and to be around the folks that I was around and have all of this help. What if I were born with a different color skin and in a row home down in Wilmington where there were gunshots all around and I couldn't go outside to play? I was being bullied or had to fear as I walked to school every day. And then some kind soul, maybe a year or two older than I was, says, well, let me tell you, tell you how the ropes work around here. You stick with me and I'll protect you. And then eventually you find that the protection has escalated into, why don't you carry this gun for me? And then you're into this trail of incarceration. So it's it's easy to fathom that, you know, if if I were born into that life, I might well be have made the same choices that these people have and, and be one of the folks that Kathleen's talking to in prison. It just happens to be the privilege that I had in being born the way I was that made all this possible. So I kind of look at it from that perspective. So you'd like to hear a song that, that sort of brings people together and celebrates what's what's connected our about us our, our commonality our commonality and I, and yeah. I love all these stories that you told today george and what strikes me is how they're not pu more publicized that more people don't know about just the fact that there has been gun legislation passed 
unanimously. That means that mm -hmm. there are hardcore people on the right who said, no, this is a good idea. I, I support this. And we're led to believe that that never happens, that that's not even possible, that there's no way any person on the right would ever agree to any kind of gun regulation. And it's also that it's people think that everyone on the left wants to get rid of everybody's guns. And I mean, here you are, a gun owner who also is looking at these issues and saying, hey, how can we make this all better for all of us? I wanted to go back to Kathleen. I asked you both about good news and what was there. And Kathleen, you didn't get to share your good news, your about, good what news about what you're happening. seeing that's happening. Well, one of the things that, that I always try to do is actually have civil conversation with the folks on the other side, you might say. I show up at all the you know, various vigils and in different times. I've had a, a chance then to speak with people who are concerned about their Second Amendment rights. And I don't want to have anyone's Second Amendment rights removed either. And I know that those folks are told that I do because it activates them, right? And because they're afraid, they are willing to believe that I might be their opponent. So that's a whole thing that can be unraveled by actually standing there face to face in a civil way. And one of the things that define common ground, I've said to several of the gentlemen, I said, I think we do have common ground. Really? Is typically the answer. And I said, yeah, I think we can agree on one thing. Really? Yeah. I think we can agree there's too many people being killed and harmed and they look at me and they go, yeah, you're right. I can agree with that. Too many people dying. So I think we can agree on something else. What? I think that not everybody can be trusted with a gun. And to a man, they all kind of look up to the right a little bit and they're thinking, and I say, I bet you're thinking about your brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and they chuckle and go, no, it's my uncle. So <laughs> Interesting that it would be somebody they know. Yes, yeah. it, it, it is typically. Mm -hmm. And and then I tell them, you know, I can't be trusted with a gun. And they look a little startled and they look <laughs> at me. And I say, you have no idea how clumsy I am. I cannot be trusted with a gun. I would shoot myself in the tail. And they said, you mean the foot? I said, no, I'm that clumsy. I mean the tail. <laughs> but then, just like we're chuckling now, mm -hmm. right. this gentleman standing there holding a, if it's Pennsylvania, he's holding a loaded weapon and he's got the you know the clip what do you call magazine. it the magazine clipped to his his mm -hmm. belt and everything and he's got his don't tread on me flag and he's got his camouflage gear on and stuff and and he and i are chuckling mm -hmm. over what is really a moment a civil moment of understanding how these things look to all of us mm -hmm. that alone starts to make a difference in that that man is not my enemy and now maybe he can see that i'm not his either Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, the thing that always strikes me is that when you see these polls that, you know, something like 80% of the country agrees about reasonable gun restrictions. And then on the other hand, at one point, George said, you know, we're not going to get anything passed at the federal level. And, you know, to me, one of the things I sometimes say is it feels to me like the the fact that you can have a vast majority of people agree about something and not have it just be a done deal is a maybe one of the clearest demonstrations of the failure of our political process you know because of money and gerrymandering we have these people who are basically insulated from having to respond to what the public will 
is. But it's also but but when you do remember that that vast majority of people agree, it's not so hard to believe that somebody who is a gun owner would agree because obviously most people do, you know, that that we need to do something about certain certain problems. Right. And and folks who take a moment to realize a family member could in a crisis take their own life, which is just bitterly grief striking, or a family member, maybe a kid is 12 years old now and he's being bullied at school. You don't realize within the next five years, he could be one going back to the school where he was bullied and causing a tragedy. If anybody realizes a family member could cause grief like that, then all of a sudden they're going to be way more interested in like, wait a minute, let's don't let my little cousin have a life like that. Let's don't let my mother have to and my grandmother have to live with that tragedy. Then suddenly you realize, let's make sure that people can't come so easily to a life destroying decision because it destroys their own life, too. Yeah, Kathleen, you actually just made me think of two songs. I don't know if you've heard by by Tom Paxton. So he has one song that's what if no matter how mad he was, he couldn't get his hands on a gun. And another one called Johnny Got a Gun, obviously referring to that great novel, the anti-war novel, but about a kid who's bullied, who then gets a gun and ends up killing another kid. And the chilling line in that song is, and his feet don't reach the floor. <laughs> anyway, you know, but for some reason, Tom Paxton has, has has put out some of the most powerful songs, I think, related to some of those issues. And it's interesting that in one paragraph, you, you kind of touched on the topics of two of them. <laughs> well, you guys... Are amazing. I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I don't want to take mm-hmm. up all of your time. So in closing, what message would you like to communicate to the people out there listening around this issue? What would you, in closing, what would you like to say to everybody? Uh, for me, what I would say to people mm-hmm. is stop for a second when you consider gun violence prevention and say not necessarily what happened in the past or what might be happening today. Think instead about the future and about the future of all the children growing up right now who might possibly become perpetrators. How can we help them? And of course, all the children growing up right now that we don't want to have to have memories like like we have now. Think about how you want to vote, how you want to show up, what matters most, and find common cause. And, and for me, it would be if you do nothing else, Look at the issues that affect you and vote and get people into office who can really represent what it is you would like to see happen. Because as you said earlier, the representation we have right now is not indicative of the will of the people. So I think on a personal basis, look at what, evaluate what the will of you as an individual is and then choose somebody who you feel can represent that in, in Congress and, and uh, in all the elected offices. And also to the, to the extent that you're interested in issues, whether it's gun violence or whether it's environment or, or anything else, what role would you like to play? Even if it's informed observer, connect with those organizations who are really studying this and, and learn more in depth about what's really going on so we can take an active role in our own lives. This was something that I feel I failed to do in those 30 years, I said, when we weren't paying attention. And a lot of people were, well, I'm just living my life and somebody else is looking out after this for me. 
Nobody else is looking out after this for you. There are people who are involved with the issue, but in order for them to be truly looking out after that issue for you, you have to be engaged with them. They have to be engaged with you. So look at where that engagement exists. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's really great talking with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Val. Great talking with you. Thanks Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to a very special edition of Music Music for for the the New Revolution. Revolution. Music for the New Revolution is recorded at Melody Vision Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. For more information about Music for the New Revolution, check out our website at musicforthenewrevolution.com. Like us on Facebook, follow our Twitter feed, and also our Spotify playlist. And you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash musicforthenewrevolution. Thanks for listening. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell.